This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. is Sky Blues Extra. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sky Blues Extra podcast with me, David Moore, Tom Ward, and I'm pleased to say we're joined by a very special guest. He joined the coaching staff at Coventry 18 months before being asked to become the first team manager. That was after Gary McAllister stepped down for personal reasons. During his time in charge, he rejuvenated the club's fortunes, including some thrilling and high-scoring wins against Warsaw and Gillingham. But despite taking 37 points from just 23 games, he was relieved of his managerial duties, much to the frustration at the time of Coventry supporters. We're really pleased to be joined this evening of course, by Eric Black. Evening, Eric. Good evening, guys. Delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me on. Eric, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm sure the many of our listeners are really looking forward to hearing your Sky Blue story this evening. Well, I'm quite happy to contribute what's required. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, I just want to sort of take it back to where it all sort of started for yourself. You're at Aberdeen, a great time for the club at Aberdeen under Sir Alex Ferguson. What was it like playing for him? He's obviously been spoke about as the greatest ever manager. And mm. do you think that his coaching management style sort of played a part with your own coaching style? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, when I, I was a young lad, I was only 16 when I joined and I was 17, I think, when I made my debut. Um, so I had no comparison at that time. Um, I'd only been managed and coached by... Alec Ferguson and Archie Knox at the time, so you don't have any direct comparisons. Um, so it's only probably latterly that you realise the influence, um, not only on myself as a footballer going forward and the career that I had, um, but when I decided to go into coaching, there are certain elements without doubt that they contribute to. Um, I mean, at the time, I must admit, there were days when I could have... Uh, seen the back of Alec Ferguson, I'd have to say, but um, that was the way it was. Um, and he was uh, insatiable in his desire to be successful. Um, 
I mean, I've worked with several managers now, um, quite a few, and I still believe that some managers can work for five days a week and put the pressure on players and ensure that they adhere to what they require. Some do it six, but he's the only one I've ever seen that can do it seven days a week incessantly. And that's why he's, without doubt, in my opinion, the best I've ever been. And what was it sort of like sort of uh, playing in, in Scotland at that time? Um, and did you see that there's a big difference between that and sort of English football once you became involved? Um, I mean, it, from a playing career, obviously we had an extremely good team at Aberdeen at the time and won two European trophies. So in terms of comparison with England, we were certainly on a par with the top teams in England. Um, there's no question about that. When latterly uh, I joined after being at Celtic and being at Motherwell, um, my introduction to the, the championship at that time, um, there were certain things, certainly physically, I found that the, the players were better prepared physically and were physically bigger, to be honest, um, now whether that was some imports, but in general, the players were bigger, um, quicker, possibly. I wouldn't say that they were tactically any better or technically any better, um, but they certainly were physically better. Um, but it was it was a great experience for me to come down and obviously had watched a lot of English football in my time, but not to have worked in English football and to experience it firsthand was, was a wonderful experience and certainly enhanced me as a coach. Mm. And you were obviously very young when you played at Aberdeen. Um, it must have been great winning you know, so many trophies at that age. Yeah, I was very fortunate. Again, I obviously landed with some decent players um, who were all, a lot of them were international football players. Um, and again, I was led with them. Um, you like to think that you've contributed in some way, but I must admit I, I had an awful lot of good teachers around about me who were extremely professional. It's the word that's a hard it's hard to describe just what they were, but they were tough, um, but they were they were professional to mm. the end. And I think that's uh, that's something sometimes that you can question players of, but there wasn't a player in that team and obviously the management team that um, you couldn't possibly accuse of not being professional in what they did. Mm. And you um, you scored against Real Madrid in the, the Cup Winners' Cup in 1983. I think you were 19 at the time. That must have been a, a very special moment. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I was as I say, I was very fortunate. I think somebody calculated that uh, I think every 18 games I won a trophy with Aberdeen. So I used to just, <laughs> uh, I don't know how that worked out, but it did. Um, I used to just get lambasted by Alec Ferguson, pick up some trophies and then go on holiday. And then start again. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the process. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was very special scoring against Real Madrid. Um, we, that year, we obviously uh, were quite exceptional. We won two or three trophies that year. But, I suppose the the name Real Madrid, we'd beaten Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals and I think that that momentous comeback that we had at Petordre that night was the, mm. I suppose it was the, the night that we really believed that we could take on most teams in Europe at that time. Because um, there was a lot of good teams, there was still Paris Saint-Germain, Barcelona, Inter Milan, Bayern were all still in it at that point. Um, but that night, I think, was a little bit special. And then obviously to go on to the final against the, the great Real Madrid is, a, mm. is an occasion, something you obviously remember. Yeah, brilliant. You had a spell in, in France at Metz and then you sort of retired. It, it came probably a little bit early. 
and I think it was due to sort of a back problem. Yeah. Alex Ferguson said that it was possibly excessive sort of game time. Um, is that is that kind of would you agree with that assessment? And do you think that that's an issue for the modern game? And do you also feel that perhaps at the time the sort of you know sports physios come on a long way perhaps yeah. than it had back then? Yeah, I mean I think hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, I wouldn't one I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, there, were, there was two or three young players coming through at that time and. Uh, for whatever reason, we were given the opportunity to play in the first team and a, and a very strong first team it turned out to be. Um, obviously, sports medicine, sports science was nowhere near what it is now, um, which is great. Um, there wasn't enough money, obviously, at that time to invest in these types of things. But now, without doubt, that, it will never happen again. It's um, The players are so well looked after. Uh, the sports science, this medicine... Is exceptional now, um, so I can't imagine that anybody will ever be overplayed or played with an injury. And and players just don't do it now. They just um, they don't have the mentality, and it's probably right because we were probably foolish at the time. But we wanted to play. You wanted to earn the right to be in the team. You wanted to win something with your team. You wanted to try and get into the international team. You wanted to try and earn more money. Um, so those were all elements that. Some of them now have been removed, um, and I think, thankfully now, the sports science, as I said, in sports medicine is is so much more advanced uh, that these things are spotted very quickly and are corrected very quickly. Yeah, it's still it's still very fast and sort of, isn't it, furious at the moment in terms of games. I mean, you look at leagues like the Championship or you look at those teams that perhaps are in Europa, it's really the so much because... It's still a hell of a lot of playing time, I guess. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. But the players are, I think, physically better prepared. The recoveries are an awful lot better. I mean, at Southampton, luckily, before I left, I think we played, I think, eight games in a month or nine games in a month. And two of those, one was at Inter Milan in, in Milan and the other one was at Beersheba in Israel. And we were coming back and you were playing every every three days. Um I suppose squad rotation assists in some degree, although a lot of players don't want to be rested. Um, but it's all about recovery at that point. And the Premier League clubs certainly have enough finances that they can ensure that you you travel on charter planes. Uh, the recovery they can come in, they've got the right um, nutrition after games. They've got the right medical backup after games. So. Um, they can do it. I'm not saying that it's always best for the, the performance long term, but the players are now capable of playing two days, uh, sorry, two games a week um, without it having any major effect as long as the recovery periods are and they recover the way they should do in professionally, as 99.9 of them do now. And then after a couple of coaching and management spells in Scotland, you, you ended up at Coventry and, and obviously appointed manager in 2004. How did the sort of move down to Coventry come about? Um, it was, I just, I was contacted. I'd been at Motherwell and they had gone into administration um, and I was deliberating over my future, what I was going to do. Um, so I resigned from there um, because the, the chairman had promised certain things to me that hadn't materialised um, and then he hadn't kept me aware of what was happening so I decided it was time to go so I left there and very quickly I had a call from um, Stuart Marshall who was Gary's agent um, 
asking me if I would meet Gary and would they be interested in going to Coventry. So I met with Gary um, and Struan and I was delighted to, to accept the, the opportunity, which was a, a slightly different opportunity at the time because I had managed at Motherwell. Um, but Gary obviously was still playing and very well at that. Um, and he needed somebody who had managed to do most of the coaching um, and some of the, the management stuff because even at half time uh, he was obviously still recovering from coming off the pitch so it was a slightly atypical certainly the only time that I've experienced it but um, I certainly enjoyed it um, I had a wonderful time And obviously at Coventry um, Eric you, you obviously coached and, and managed a lot of um, really high class top quality footballers like yeah. are there sort of any key players that sort of really stood out for you that you just felt you know, just we're just a grade above, or yeah. I mean, I always look at the mentality of players. I must admit, yeah, we can look at all the attributes that they have, but it's a team sport, and they have to gel, and they have to have a little bit of hunger, and they want to prove something. And I mean, the players that I had, I was really fortunate in regards to players like Doyle and McSheffrey and Shaw and Morell, even Scott Shearer at the time, and Safra. We had a lot of players who had real qualities that you could blend into a team. But they were all good boys who wanted to improve and wanted to win football matches, which for a manager or a coach on a day-to-day basis is a dream. Uh, to have players that are committed to improving themselves um, and want to be part of something and want to win on a Saturday and do what it needs. And that's a lot of hard work during the week to win a football match. Um, and I, I kind of contrast that by what, latterly when I left Blackburn, I was a little bit disillusioned by the whole thing because I, I ended up working with players that I really didn't believe were interested in getting any better and making themselves any better. Um, and that, for a coach, is is the last scenario, really, that you want to be facing. And Eric, there's, there's a lot of times that the fans speak about the move to the Rico Arena and the atmosphere there isn't quite the same as what it was at Highfield Road. How did you sort of, you know, what was your sort of, feelings about Highfield Road as a ground and, and was it quite hard for away teams to sort of come to the Sky Blues? Oh, without doubt. I mean, Highfield was a great football ground. It was a real football ground with which you don't get um, very easily. Um, I mean, obviously, laterally, there was a lot of various clubs, but it has to have a history, you know, so you have to have, uh, people have to have known that there was big results there, that there were big performances from Coventry. Um, and that all adds to the, the ambience in, in the stadium and the atmosphere in the stadium. And I, I loved it. I must admit, I thought it was a, it was a real home ground um, and definitely played a big part in the performances of the players. No doubt about it. Um, Rico, um, to be honest, uh, obviously I left before that happened. Yeah, I think everybody feels that at the time it was progress. Um Again, I'm not a businessman and I'm not a financial advisor in any shape or form in terms of football. So I don't know what the... the obviously, the numbers were not right um, or Coventry wouldn't be where they are today. Um, and that saddens me greatly, I've got to be honest, because uh, the history of the club is just exceptional. Um, and the support, again, is exceptional. And they've been through really difficult times, which all really seem to start... Um, Round about then, to be honest. 
Yeah, no, I agree. It was it was a very tough. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think business mixes with football, isn't it? And it was a a yeah. key a key chance for the city, I think, to move to one of those out of out of the city sort of stadiums and yeah. perhaps you know more revenues from different types of of avenues that are just other than football. Um, and what about sort of on the training ground and uh, the players that you sort of looked after and, and coached at the time? Um, did you sort of ever have to were they all sort of good lads or was there every time you had to give them a bit of a kick up the backside and, <laughs> and how sort of hard was it dealing with with egos I mean we, we hear obviously every day don't we about footballers and premiership players but yeah. it, that that's a really difficult sort of man management style how do you sort of deal with those sort of egos well it's, I mean that's part of football I mean you have to have a certain ego to be able to play football at the highest yeah. level, to perform yeah. at the highest level. So ego on its own is not a problem. Um, it's the reality that's the problem. It's realising where you fit in in the, the hierarchy of the club and in terms of your ability and what you can contribute. Um, and I always felt that if, if somebody decided that their own success was above the rest of the club, then I think you've got a problem because I think the players very quickly uh, identify that. Um, and you as the manager are the, the one that's responsible of, uh, in terms of fixing it. So I never had a problem with that. Um, I had some good lads there. We had some boys that certainly needed to be told now and again that it wasn't right what they were doing, that the, the levels of discipline weren't right or that they had to contribute in this way or whatever. That That's all part of management. Um, Management's a, a difficult um, industry, um, it's, but it's a wonderful industry. Um, and I think the balance is that you have more in your dressing room of the better types uh, than you do of the other ones. And eventually they, they turn or you have to get rid of them. So there's, there's not a million different solutions. Um, but I was very fortunate that I had Guys, and I, I think even John Eustace at the time was in there as well, who was an exceptional professional. Um, but I had Doyle, as I say, Doyle McShea for sure. Morel, I could list most of the team. Big Mo, Thaffy, they were professional players who wanted to improve, who wanted the team to do well yeah. and had a pride in their own performance. So that makes it a little bit easier. But there are obviously players that have massive uh, egos who think that they're better than the players that are playing and then they can be unsettling in the dressing room and that's what you can't afford to have. And what about sort of notable games, Eric? Was there any times that you just, is there any games you look back on now with really fond memories, uh, even if it was as a, as a sort of coach or, or your time as a manager at Coventry? Um, no, there's no, I must admit, I, I really enjoyed it. I, obviously, I had no intention of being Coventry manager when I came down. I, my intention was to work with Gary and try and ensure that Gary became the most successful Coventry manager uh, that ever was. That was my sole um, idea. Obviously, circumstances um, that arose meant that I get I got the opportunity uh, to step in, um, which, having spoken to Gary, he was more than delighted that I do it. Um, and then when I brought in Archie Knox, I thought that we had a, a pretty good balance. I mean, Archie Knox is as qualified and experienced as any football yeah. manager coach that's on the planet. Um, so I felt that having him with me, who had seen and done just about everything in the game, was a good balance. Um, but uh, I think obviously there were um, 
there were people round about the club, and certainly people round about the chairman uh, who were not necessarily attached to the club, that had made decisions otherwise. And the chairman, I mean, the chairman's football knowledge was not exceptional. He was obviously a businessman, but I think yes. when, uh, the problem is that when you tend to trust people who you... If you know 10% about something and somebody else knows 20%, they, they obviously take on the guru status. Um, and I think that was a little bit of a problem, to be honest. And it's always interesting to know how a sort of player-manager sort of combination works. How, how does that sort of work throughout a game? Um, and obviously, th- there were some fantastic results. And I, like you said, Gary, an exceptional player himself. Yeah. And he was obviously turning it on on the pitch sort of every week. Um, one game that sticks out into my mind was was Derby when he caught, scored an absolute oh cracker um, in, it, yeah. on Boxing Day. But sort of how does that relationship work? I, I know you'll probably speak before the game about certain decisions. If a game's going a certain way, you, you may you know sort of remove a player and put someone else on or go defensive yeah. but how hard is that to sort of get right from the touchline when you've got the manager playing on the pitch um i mean it's certainly not as easy as standing next to him but i think you have to have the same kind of football and ethos if you like you know you have to have certain disciplines and certain things that you want to see in your football team so i was very similar in that regard to gary we had come we both came from the both the same backgrounds um, in Glasgow from working class backgrounds. So we wanted work ethic, we wanted discipline. Um, I had obviously worked with Alec Ferguson. Um, he had worked with some top managers. Um, so we, we were pretty similar in terms of what we wanted from the game. Um, in that regard, obviously, you can speak about, well, if we go down to 10 men or if whatever, um, but football doesn't work out like that. Football changes every five minutes. Um, yeah, goal changes uh, So you have to be doing that on the pitch. He couldn't obviously see everything that was happening because he was looking after his own performance. I'm sure he was still looking at every other player on the pitch uh, in our team, yeah. but um, he was focusing mainly on being Gary McAllister, an exceptional midfield player. So... We did have one or two kind of, well, I, I don't think this, I think he has to come off. Have you seen? So we, we had that debate before half time. Um, sometimes we'd speak just as we went into the dressing room and go into the, uh, the shower room and have a quick chat. And I would say, well, this is what I'm thinking. This is where I, what I've seen. Um, and he, we normally came to an agreement. We normally came to an agreement of, of the way forward. <laughs> it wasn't always right, obviously, but um, you win some, you lose some. But in that regard, we're, I think we were pretty similar in terms of what we wanted from our football teams. Um, so for me, it wasn't a major problem. It was a slightly unusual circumstances uh, because you're constantly oh. speaking with your assistant uh, on the, the side of the pitch um, or your coaches. Um, and that wasn't the way it was. But I mean, I still had um, Gary Mills was there, so we could bounce things off each other and whatever else. So. It worked out okay. I've got to be honest, it seemed to work okay. And did you always have to sort of wait for Gary to give the old sub sign if it, if it was him that was coming off, or did you? Ever, <laughs> yeah. Ever... yeah, we tried to take him off four times. And it was, <laughs> yeah. um, no, um, to be fair to Gary, um, from day one, he was as professional as individual as you'll ever see, and he performed at a very high level, a very high level. Um, so he was never really in any danger of being taken off. Um, but there were times that we, we were, uh, well, certainly we, our, our uh, opinions differed in terms of who was coming off and who was coming on, but we kind of sorted that out pretty quickly and amicably. <laughs> 
He was the manager, so he decided. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And um, Eric, the, the consensus generally is that you brought a welcome style of football to the club. Um, and there's actually quite a lot of anger amongst the fans with your dismissal, um, you know, particularly as it followed a 5-2 win. What was your sort of take on what happened? Um, I mean, to be honest, there had been taught only a week or two prior to that with uh, about they'd spoken to Archie and myself about potentially extending our contract um, which made it then all the more bizarre um, when I was asked to meet the chairman on the Sunday morning after Gillingham um, mm. as I say it's 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 what happens in football that hey, nobody gets all decisions right and I'm not saying that that was the wrong or the right decision but I think he was the chairman was led by people who weren't really involved in the club than who he obviously thought had a better knowledge of football than than he did. Mm. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's life, and uh, you very quickly have to move on in football. Yeah, absolutely. And then after leaving Coventry, um, you went on to a number of assistant manager roles after that. Um, yeah. do, do you feel like you sort of found your feet as a, as a sort of coach rather than a manager? Um, and, and what was the sort of favourite club that you were involved with? Um, I don't think it was finding my feet. It was, um, I mean, I, I wasn't good enough at a manager or a coach to pick and choose what jobs I, I went into. Um, on the back of Coventry, I met Steve Bruce. He called me two weeks after it, and I'd, I'd never met Steve Bruce in my life. Um, and he asked me for a coffee, and I went to meet him. Um, and he offered me the job there and then. Um, I remember the first day of training, he asked me, what are you doing? Uh, what are you going to work on, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing. Um, and he came out, watched the session, and he never asked me again in 10 years what I was doing. He was always, uh, he trusted me to do what he did, what I did. As long as the intensity of the session was correct, he was mm. happy to go with it. Um, so I enjoyed enormously working with him. I had offers at Birmingham. I had three offers to go as a, a prem, not premier, as a championship manager. Um, but Steve financially kept making it difficult for me to leave um, and he kept, I had to then go and speak to Karen Brady. So uh, I enjoyed working with him and he made it right for me. So I never explored again that alternative of being a manager in my own mm. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. And in your, in your time as, um, as an assistant, you, um, you worked alongside some notable managers, um, mm-hmm. like Sir Steve Bruce and Claude Puel, people like that. Who was the best manager you worked alongside? Well, I, I, would, I would hesitate to say that one was better than the other. That managers are so varied. Um, I mean, Steve Bruce was without doubt the best man manager that I worked with. Um, mm. He was the best manager in terms of managing up the way. And with that, I mean the board 
um, the chairman, brilliant with the press, uh, brilliant with the players, um, didn't want to necessarily be involved in the coaching side of it. He came in a Friday and obviously stamped his authority on the Friday to lift things and get players aware that Saturday was around the corner. Um, but in terms of his man management skills, outstanding. Claude Puel was totally different. I, I mean, polarised in comparison. Um, and that he was an astute coach, had very firm ideas in terms of how he wanted to play the game, wasn't going to be swayed from that, had a methodology that he followed to the letter. But his interaction with the players, I think in some regards, let him down a little bit. Um, so that they all vary. They all vary with strengths and weaknesses. Um, it's getting the right team, I think, round about you. Yeah, I think it's getting the right individuals for you to be good at what you do. And I think that's good management. If you're not good at it, then get somebody that is. Um, so uh, I wouldn't say that any of them, apart from Steve, who obviously I worked for nearly nine, ten years, um, he was exceptional uh, to work for and work with. Um, but they all have their attributes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be managers in their own right. And, and obviously, there's there's a few different clubs that you've been involved with, um, but, but obviously, notably for us, Coventry. Do, do you still sort of keep up with the Coventry results? Do you look out for football results now? Or, um, it, you know, do you look at the sort of job that Mark Robbins is doing and, and sort of, yeah, sort of what do you think of, of the sort of progress that the team have made this season? Well, outstanding. I mean, I met Mark very briefly. He came down to visit Southampton when I was there and watched a couple of the training sessions. So I met him there and I had a cup of coffee with him. Um, and he's a real football man. Um, and you can't you can't be, be impressed with him when you're speaking to him. He's, he really he was living and breathing Coventry at that point. And it was a difficult task that he'd taken on. And historically, the previous few years had been difficult. Um, yeah. But obviously, I, I still live in Leamington, so um, I follow Coventry City, definitely. I, I look for the result every week. Um, and it's with great pleasure that you've announced that the, tonight they're going up. So um, I'm absolutely delighted. I think it's well justified. Um, certainly for the fans, it's, it's a wonderful turnaround from all the negativity that's been around the club for so long. I'm just delighted for them, delighted for Matt Robinson and the staff that they've uh, achieved the status of now getting into the championship. But um, it's um, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I was just going to say on, on it being difficult, obviously with you know promotion to the championship, um, how do you think the Skybees will fare? Because I think it's, a, it's an extremely different landscape to, to last time we were there, um, especially kind of financially. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the key criteria, unfortunately, is finance. Um, I mean, I've worked, I uh, went down with Birmingham and we come straight back up. Um, and I've worked in there with uh, Rotherham at Blackburn for a little bit. Um, it's a very difficult league. It's an extremely difficult league. Um, at the start of the season, yeah, you've got your favourites, but anybody can beat anybody on a given day. Um, and that's great for Coventry. That's great. Um but you have to have a depth of squad. You have to have a goal scorer, um, or you have to have an exceptional defence. So it's 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 a really really challenging. And I would say that if Mark, I don't know what budget is going to be available to them, but if he can keep them in the championship, then he's uh, he swam the ocean. I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that's got to be the target. I would think. I'm sure he's probably aiming a little bit higher, but certainly externally looking at it, if he can. Um, maintain his status in the championship then he'll have done exceptionally well 
but it's not impossible. It's not as teams like Rotherman things have found out. They've gone up and down and up and down, but they did manage to stay a couple of times. And that for revenue is enormous. Uh, just changes the landscape a little bit and allows you to build and develop other things at the club. Do you think, other than financially, do you think there's anything else that is a lot different from League One to the Championship? Obviously, I know a lot of the teams, you've got teams coming down from, from the Premiership and, and yeah. a lot of teams that are sort of sniffing around that, that playoff position, even when you look at the league uh, as it stands sort of today. But yeah, is there anything else you feel that the Sky Blues would need to improve on in terms of just you know, not financial? Um I mean, at the end of the day, it's down to football players. And unfortunately, now the way it's gone, it's very hard to unearth. Um, yeah, if you've got one or two in the uh, younger players who have come through, who have Coventry at their heart and who want to impress and who want to progress, then it's nice to have that around uh, the team. But I've got to be honest, I think the, the financial difference now between the bottom teams, certainly those that are coming up that are in Coventry's position, um, not necessarily the ones that drop down there uh, they find it very difficult as well for other reasons um, but there are teams in there who have been there for several years now who know the division inside out and it's it's a real challenge and there's a lot of good football players in the championship a lot of them um, and it's it's a hard league it's no doubt about it but I don't think that should put Coventry supporters off I think you get behind your team I think as I said You've got to stick with the manager for what he's done to ensure, get behind him, get behind the team. And, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced that with that and with the support Coventry have, they can get enough to stay up there and take the next step. And I think it's a massive step if they can retain the position in the championship. It's a massive step going forward. Um, and I think it's possible. It's quite interesting from a sort of managerial point of view. It's it's obvious the Sky Blues have played away from their city this season. And yeah. we're not entirely sure what that is going to happen next year. It could be that they're still playing away from their city in the championship. How, how do you think that will sort of affect, um, you know, in, in the championship? Do you think that will have a big difference? There's not many teams that bring lots of fans in League One, perhaps. You've got your sort of yeah. Sunderlands and a few other, but it, in the championship, it really is a different sort of kettle of fish with, with likes of Leeds and even Millwall and, and, and other sort of clubs like that, that, you know, just in general, larger away crowds and not yeah. having that sort of home support. No, I agree. And I think that not having your home ground, although I'm sure with the players, they very quickly become familiar with the ground that they're playing at after four or five games. But I still feel you have to have that home ground with your home support that will outnumber their away support, that will get behind you, that will make it slightly intimidating for the referees, slightly intimidating for the other players. Um, and I think realistically, Coventry are going to have to win more games at home than they're going to have to win away. That's that's a yeah. They're not going yeah. to win as many away. But I think it's hard again if you're taking that element of home, that home game, that waking up on a Saturday night, it's a home game, you crowd behind you, um, that pressure that is put on, as I said, other opposing teams, referees, coaches, whatever. Uh, I think that's a big miss. Um, but the... Um, there's no reason why the, the fans won't travel to wherever it is. You know, there's no reason why the Coventry fans won't go if it's Birmingham, well, Birmingham, but wherever it'll be um, and hopefully get behind the team. Yeah, of course. And um, obviously, th there is a lot of 
you're sort of coaching after you left the Sky Blues and, and you were at Aston Villa for, for a long period of time. Um, once that sort of sort of ended, what, what have you been doing since then? And, and is coaching something you think you may ever go back to or, or is football something you may go back to? Um, well, when I left Villa, I was two and a half years at Southampton as assistant. Of course. Manager. I enjoyed enormously. Um, but I must admit, I started, obviously I had problems with my back and my health and things. Um, and I was living in a hotel five, six nights a week because in the Premier League now, um, and I'm not looking for sympathy, it's, it's a seven days a week. It's a 24-hour job. You're constantly training somebody or preparing somebody or yeah. for the next match or for the opposition or next week's opposition or whatever. So you're constant. Um, and I, I just felt that having been the president or the right-hand man to the president for so many years, uh, I just didn't feel that I was involved in as much. And I, I, I didn't enjoy that. I mean, the way that it's structured now, there are about four assistant managers or first-team coaches. So okay. I wasn't. I didn't feel that I was involved that much. Plus, my health wasn't great. Um, and I remember the, the night I left at Man City, we had, they scored with, I think, Sterling, Sterling scored with about... 96th minute to make it 2-1 or 1-0 I can't remember um, and I went home that night and I didn't come back um, I just uh, I just felt that that was it um, I'd, I'd done enough with it uh, and I wasn't enjoying it and I wasn't getting that edge on the in the game I mean I, I think after the Man City game the boys were in tears in the dressing room and I was looking for a chicken sandwich which uh, told me something <laughs> <laughs> so I went home that night and uh, I phoned and said that I wouldn't be coming back. Um, I still had a year of my contract to run, but I, I don't regret it. That was two years ago. Um, and I, I said then I wasn't going back into football and I, I won't go back into football. That's me. You won't see me in a, a dugout ever again. Um, a few will be quite happy with that, I can assure you. But um, <laughs> it's no, I won't be. Uh, I've found a different life. I've been, I mean, I've been in football for 40 years. I mean, non-stop, even in the summer, yeah. as much as you think that you actually have a break. You don't. That's your most worrying time is during the summer when you're trying to recruit and get a team ready. Um, so you never, never breaks. And I just felt it was time to to do something else. So uh, I'm now the oldest apprentice. My son is a, a cabinet maker and I'm the oldest apprentice in the world. I'm probably the worst <laughs> one as well. But I'm, uh, so that's where I find myself. And I know I can guarantee you I won't be back into football. And with, um, I was just going to ask about um, your time at Southampton because obviously they're, Sort of renowned for bringing through, you know, really good yeah. young players. Um, were there was there anyone sort of under your watch that has come through in that time? And are there any sort of ones to watch for the future? Um, I mean, obviously, the biggest transfer we had was Van Dijk um, at that time, and I, I remember arriving and seeing him playing. Obviously, I knew of him, um, but at the end of pre-season, I, I thought he was the best defender I'd ever seen, and I know that's easy now to say that, but. I spoke to an awful lot of people and saying that I'd never seen anybody that big, that agile, that good with the ball, that aggressive, um, that competitive. And I thought he's he is the archetype of defender. He's what he's what defenders are meant to be. Um, certainly modern ones. Um, so I enjoyed working with him. We had an awful lot of international players. Most of the players were internationals at that time. I enjoyed working with. Um, uh, James Ward-Prowse who was excellent I must admit again professional um, mm. but I, I, there were so many um, good players there Stephen Davis was there um, 
Um, Nathan Redman was there. There's a, there were a lot of Charlie Austin. There was a lot of good football players and a, and a good atmosphere. Uh, there was one or two elements that, because they wanted to go in their own direction, but you're going to get that in any football club and certainly in a Premiership club. Mm. But it's, it's a, it was a very, very well-run club, I must admit. The facilities were fantastic. The structure in the club was fantastic. Um, and I'm sure they'll continue to bring young players through. Mm. And you mentioned obviously forty years is a is a very long time in in top flight top flight football. Um, what sort of changes did you see through, throughout that period in terms of technology sort of entering into the game? You know, we see it now on yeah. Sky Sports where they're sort of with iPads and they've got this that and they're dragging players around and and all of that sort of stuff. What was the sort of most notable changes that you you saw? And was there any that you thought were for the worse and and some for the better? Um, I mean, I, I think when you you're always uh, as you go through these things, um, it's 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 difficult to really say what's the one that's impacted the most. I mean, I, without doubt, technology uh, was enormous beforehand. The players had to trust you, but you didn't have a, you had some footage, video footage, perhaps to go through with them. But the data that's now available, I mean, I, I used to, we used to get handed data uh, at Villa, at Southampton, at wherever I was, um, and it would take you a week to read it, never mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> under that. So I, I very quickly had to give them four or five categories that I wanted to see what had happened, um, elements, and, and, I, and I stuck to those. Um, when yeah. you then went into the player, individual player development, it was great because you had an analyst who was with you. You could stop, start, rewind, say that, do that, cut it, cut the elements of his game that were good, show him the elements that weren't good, get into that debate with the player. And I think that's important as well, that you have the player has to be on side. The player has to believe now, certainly, that you want to make him a better player. And he's part of he's got to be the biggest part of the journey. Um and I remember saying it to players at Birmingham, you know, the sports science, sports medicine, the, the fans, the press, they're only ever 10, 11% of the contribution. So it leaves a big contribution from the player. Um, you know, 90% of it is up to the individual player. I mean, we, we all think we're great coaches, but it's, it's having the players that are committed to doing it and believe that you want to make them better football players. And they want to be better football players. And I alluded to that with the Blackburn thing, but... Um, so that's been a change without doubt the data the media obviously has been enormous change because the supporters are the expectation of supporters now is is so unrealistic um, that that worries me at times I mean I remember Southampton coming off at the end of the season we, we got to the cup final we lost 3-2 to Man United we should have beaten them um, yeah. and we finished 8th in the Premier League and Claude Puel and myself, normally the status you go around the pitch at the end with the kids and all that kind of stuff. So him and I walked out and we were booed from the opening minute we walked out wow. right round the stadium until we got back in. And I thought, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I went up to Les Reed and I said, who on earth are we working for here? Real Madrid? <laughs> Um, yeah. but, so the expectation has become ridiculous Crazy. I, I find that absolutely gobsmacking yeah. actually as someone that sort of grew up quite close to Southampton have seen what they've sort of gone through it's, it's, that's that's staggering really well I experienced it um, I'm not saying it was always like that but no. I must admit it, it really 
it brought it home to me that the expectation of supporters, if if you're 15th, then you've got to be 12th. If you're 12th, you've got to be 10th. If you're 5th, you should really be 3rd. You know, so that's the scenario. That is the mindset. And that, for managers, is extremely difficult. And people don't understand the, the processes that coaches and managers go through to try and find the right direction for the team and the individual players and the club. Um, and to be very quickly moved on, and uh, you know, it's, it's overnight success. Um, but hopefully that will change, um, and coaches will be given an opportunity to, to work with players who want to, to improve themselves. And lastly, and it might be one that you, you're not not wanting to, to discuss, but um, interestingly enough, there's been a lot of people that have spoke about, um, obviously with the pandemic that we've had, um, yeah players' wages and, and the money in football. It, do you think there's some room for looking at sort of caps with wages or do you, you know, is, do you think that could never ever happen and we are sort of where we are now? We've sort of made our bed and, and have to lie in it a little bit. Well, the, the only thing that will correct it uh, in terms of the actual numbers is Sky TV. They're the big yeah. Um Obviously, the Premier League now uh, is worldwide and there's an awful lot of income coming from overseas as well and that's not been maximised yet so there might be a little bit to go yeah. um, unfortunately I mean I think in the lower leagues um, capping may well be a good way forward certainly initially but football's a competitive game um, yeah. people don't get into football a lot of people don't get into football to finish third or second um, and they want by whatever means they have and that tends to be money uh, to win Um so it's a competitive industry. I don't think it would detract from it. I think it would just show the quality of the the management of the club, the the manager and coaches, if they were restricted to a certain budget. I think, and the recruitment, obviously the recruitment now has become so important. I think these things would certainly ensure a clearer picture, if you like. Um, but whether that will happen, I have, I have my doubts because there's a lot of competitive individuals who who want to be number one and that's why and I suppose that's why the league is so exciting um, and that's why you know we look at the newspapers and see that Chelsea have signed X player or Man United are looking at this but, and that's what keeps it all going um, so I don't see that ever changing uh, unless uh, the money drops and then there might be a, a semi-check in terms of how we're going forward there's been quite a lot of sort of leaps forward I think with in terms of youth structure and stuff now in terms yeah. of people playing from a different age I know before you, you know you could be sort of 16 and you could you could be out there that still happens don't you do sort of get those wonder yeah. kids don't you but the sort of grassroots foot you know football now has sort of started to go more into a, a staged out um, process. Do you think that, that the England sort of national team will see benefits of of that? I mean, they've already seen some yeah. some benefits. I think they have already. I agree with you. I think that some of the players that England are producing are exceptional and are world class football players. Um, so the development program is definitely uh, heading the right way. There's no doubt about it. I sometimes fear when I look at it, and it's probably just me as a an old retired individual, but. I look at the kids that are coached at a certain level and the tactical things that they do and and I, and I, I fear, I just worry that it swings to the right to the other side where we stop and we lose the the players who are just instinctive and play what they see and you know I'm not saying that we'll ever get back to that but I, I do believe that the 
the pendulum has swung slightly too far towards starting coaching and technical and ta- uh, sorry tactical things at an earlier age, um, and I see it in the, some of the uh, the youth teams. Um, and I think we've got to be really careful. I'm not saying that we've gone there, but I think we've got to be really careful. Or we'll we'll just produce regular players who are very capable of doing all the same things, but are frightened really to to do the things that make football that special. Exciting. Yeah, we want to go and watch. Yeah, no, of course. And it's it's fascinating. I could speak speak about the sort of the way that football's changed through the era for, for absolute forever, I expect. Um, but it, we really appreciate you coming on, Eric. It's been really great to chat to you, especially finding out, you know, more about your sort of Sky Blue story and the times that you spent at Highfield Road and involved with Coventry City. Um, and we just want to say thank you, really, on behalf of, you know, ourselves and all of the Sky Blues Extra podcast listeners of the contribution that you made during your time as, as both assistant and the manager of Coventry. No, that's very kind of you and um, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to speak to you and uh, some of the Sky Blue fans. And listeners, don't forget to like, share and comment on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. All you need to do is use the hashtag Sky Blues Extra podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sky Blues Extra podcast. days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's maximize your home ground advantage with mcdelivery order now on the mcdonald's app at participating restaurants 18 plus serving times delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonald's.com mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. Talk sport. Powered by fans.